we will be this morning, with God's help, considering just one one verse, uh, verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. I am Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, is to come, the Almighty. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy inspired word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, and we do pray now that you would help us, Lord, as we consider your perfections that are described for us here, even in this short verse. Help us, Lord, to glorify you and to praise you this morning because of what we hear and what we consider. We pray, Lord, that you would be exalted. I decrease that you may increase, become glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let me do something really quick. Well, brothers and sisters, we uh, come now to the final verse in John's prologue. And they are remarkable words, are they not? And they are words that we have heard before. And they're found in verse 4. Grace and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And now, here at the end of this prologue, or the end of this introduction, we are given more insight into the Eternal One. Again, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, and who is, and who is to come the Almighty. As we study through this letter of Revelation, I am certain that there will be many questions that we are hoping will be answered about the future. Uh, I'm certain that we we will be hoping that there will be many questions that will be answered about the church and her role in the days to come. Uh, I read recently of a survey in which Members of churches were asked, what book would you most like, would you most desire to, to be heard preached in your church? Uh, the answer was the book of Revelation letter. Uh, the same survey was asked to pastors, uh, which letter, book of the Bible do you least want to preach through? The answer, Revelation. Uh, and for, I think, the, the, the reasons that we're talking about. There, there are things that we hope to discover about the future. That, let me say to you, though, when we're reading through Revelation, Revelation is not a crystal ball. It's not intended to be uh, some kind of crystal ball that tells us all of the details, every single one of them that we're concerned about, about the future. I, I would like to encourage you about this, and I hope that, that, that this will be something that you hear repeatedly throughout this teaching of Revelation. This letter is about the past. This letter is about the present. And this letter is about the future. But I would encourage you to remember chiefly that this letter is preeminently about the glory of God and the victory of the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead that we just read in Colossians, the ruler of the kings of the earth, uh, the one who loves us and the one who released us by from our sins by his blood the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about the glory of God and the victory of Christ. 
This letter gives us a church or gives the church a view of history from the past, the present and the future, but from the perspective of heaven. As we here are on earth, the church past, present and future, we are given a heavenly perspective so that in spite of whatever we experience on earth, we will know from God's perspective how we are to see what's going on here on earth. Heaven's perspective is this. Christ has won the victory over all of his and over all of our enemies. And that he will return in victory. We must not also abandon the Trinitarian formula that is consistent and constantly being weaved in and out of this letter. For example, John has gone from quoting the prophet Zechariah, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, him being Christ. 2, verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Which we learn from verse 4 is the Father. We learned also that it is the Spirit who is speaking to the churches. Uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. There is this... this Trinitarian formula that is being woven in and out of this letter. Whenever we hear the word God, we must think of the triune God, not just one inseparable person to the other persons. At the beginning of this letter, in the opening salutation, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, speaks. And now, at the end of this salutation, introduction, prologue, the Father speaks again. He speaks in the beginning of the introduction, and now he speaks at the end of the introduction. It's, it's also fitting that he refers to himself then as the beginning and the end, isn't it? He is the Alpha and the Omega. Interesting also that we are hearing from the Father in the beginning of this letter, and we will not hear from the Father until the end of this letter, chapter 21. He is truly the Alpha and the Omega. And this is meant for our encouragement, brothers and sisters. For from the beginning to the very end of history, God the Sovereign Lord is holding and has been and will continue to be holding all things together by His holy power. And he is accomplishing all of His holy will through Christ and He will bring many sons to glory. This, I pray, will serve as a great comfort for your and my soul. That we know without wavering that all of the ebbs and flows of our lives, the, the ups and the downs, as we talked about in the Woman of the Word, the periodic spiritual highs and the periodic spiritual lows, that they have all been and are being providentially governed by the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This morning then, with God's help, we shall consider five points, consider the perfect, considering or concerning the perfections of God presented here to us in this final verse of the prologue, the perfections of God in verse 8. Number one, the sovereignty of God. Number one, the, the sovereignty of God. Uh, verse 8 again. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, brothers and sisters, you've heard this word used before in this church, I'm sure. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard the word sovereign or sovereignty used in reference to, to God. Uh, more importantly than you hearing it in this church, which is important, you hear sovereignty or sovereign described in a way to describe God in his perfection in the scriptures. In the scriptures, God describes himself in his perfections as being sovereign. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Psalm 71, 16. I will proclaim or I will come and proclaim your mighty acts. Sovereign Lord, I will proclaim your mighty deeds. Yours alone. There is no one else working in all of creation. No one else's fingerprints are all over creation like the sovereign Lord's are all over creation. Colossians 1.16 For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. God is sovereign. That is, God is the supreme ruler. He is the one who governs with absolute power in absolute authority. He alone, he alone. Supremely governs over all of creation with the power of his might. There is no space in all of creation over which God is not sovereign. There is no creature in all of creation over which God does not rule. He rules the mighty whale and the mighty lion. And he rules over men and women as well. Uh, there is no sun, no moon. No star that does not perform in creation apart from the governing of God. The sun, it gets its heat from God. The moon, it reflects the, the, the light of the sun because God allows it to do so. The, the stars that, that sparkle in the midnight sky do so because God is sovereignly ruling over them. They are obeying God in their performance. The planets and the galaxies exist because of their maker, the sovereign one. The deepest and most unexplored spaces of space are known and governed by God. They are all formed by the word of his mouth. In an instant, they all came to be. When God said, let there be, it was so. They came to be. All of creation bows to its maker. All of creation Depends upon him for their existence. And God has supremely also governed over the past. He is ruling over the present. He has authority over the future. And we must be reminded that God is sovereign. It would be a good spiritual practice, I think, for you and I. If every day we reminded ourselves, God is sovereign, I am not. God is in control and I am not. For isn't that one of the, the great challenges that we have on a daily basis is, is trying to control our lives, 
trying to control all of the happenings. And we just don't. And we can't. Those who first received this letter needed to be reminded that God is sovereign. That there would be intensifying pressure upon the church. And they needed to know that God was still in control. There was coming a time when the church of yesterday was going to be faced with persecution and tribulation. And they would be tempted to ask this question that I wonder if you and I are ever tempted to ask. Are the times in the hands of God or are the times in the hands of men? Who's running this show? It's important that we have a robust grasp on and strong belief in the sovereignty of God. We are far too empty, uh, tempted to observe the world. To observe even our lives as a car whose brakes have failed. Or as a train that's gotten completely off track. Completely out of control. Our lives feel like that sometimes if we're honest. And we may be tempted to question the sovereignty of God. We may be too be questioned to ask, are the times in the hands of God? Or are the times just simply spinning out of control? We sometimes question the holy hand of God. We are often perplexed and frustrated with the outcomes of our lives. May I say to you, brothers and sisters, do not despise his holy work. Do not for one second question his holy hand. Do not doubt for a second that his providences, though they for you and I, though they may be mysterious, though they may at sometimes be frustrating, do not doubt this, that God is promising to us, His people, that in the grand scheme of things, no matter how difficult they may be, that they are momentary, that they are light, and that even better than that, they are working out for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, the seven churches of Asia Minor were on the cusp of experiencing persecution for their faithful witness to Christ. And they needed to know that somehow, some way, their lives have not gone off of track, but that this is the plan of God. Uh, this is the way that God has determined and predestined His history, His story to take place. It's interesting, as a side note, that every time the church is persecuted, all throughout history, the church grows. Even now, over the past year and a half, through this pandemic, the church, one person has said to one of our members that this would be the death of the church. No, the church, the true church has risen. Yes, false churches have gone under hiding. Yes, false churches have closed. But the true church remains. The true church says we will obey God and not men. The conductor has not lost control, therefore. Be encouraged then. That despite opposition, despite tribulation, God is, God always will be ruling sovereignly and reigning sovereignly over all of history. Not just true for the church of yesterday, but true for the church today and true even for the whole world. God is ruling and reigning over all of the world. And in the midst of this, he's preserving his church throughout all of our highs and all of our lows. He is working out everything according to the counsel of his inscrutable will. 
And yet it is his perfect will. God is in control. This should cause us then not to despair. But rather this should be a great cause for cheer. We have not been left to chance. We have not been left to karma. We've been not, we've not been left to luck. Those, those are brothers, those are, those are false gods. We entrust nothing into the hands of luck. We entrust nothing into the hands of chance or karma. Uh, Nothing into the hands of horoscopes or zodiac signs or tarot cards. All of those are witchcraft and they have no place among the people of God. Erase luck. Chance, karma, erase those words from your lips. You do violence to the sovereignty of God when you say such things. God is sovereign. God Almighty rules. God is governing our lives and we have been given a promise that our lives in Christ shall always be secure because they are in the hands of God. And he will not let one of his sheep be lost. Spurgeon says, God hath purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God hath plans, and those plans are wise, and can never be dislocated. Dear saints, do not doubt the sovereign rule of God. It has been said that there is not even the smallest of molecules that are outside of the sovereignty of God. Not even one mite of dust is outside of the sovereignty of God. And he cares for the lilies of the field. How much more will the sovereign God care for you? Ah, What should be our response to the sovereignty of God? What application is there for this point? Simply this, worship and adore him. For he rules and governs all things by the power of his might. Worship him. Secondly, he is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We've been presented with the sovereignty of God. And in this verse, we are also presented with the, what is known as the eternality of God. These are God's, these are God's infinite perfections. We're, we're, we're mentioning five, but they are infinite in what they truly are. We could never make a list of all the perfections of God. We would not have enough words to say. You all know very well that the the alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And the omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. G.K. Beale says concerning the alpha and omega, this is a figure called murism. Murism. M-E-R-I-S-M. Murism. Murism states polar opposites, G.K. Beale says, in order to highlight everything between the opposites. Interesting. As the beginning... And the end, the Alpha and Omega. God also rules everything in between. And here again, we are given this allusion to the Old Testament. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling generations from the beginning. I, the Lord. Listen to what he says. The first and with the last. I am he. To speak of the eternality of God is is very simply this. It is to declare that God is eternal. That God has no beginning and he has no end. That he is eternal. 
He exists outside of time and outside of history. For you and I creatures, we only know time. We only know history. But God is outside of time and history. We are creatures made in time and history. He is the creator who has no time and who has no history. He's the creator of time. Which then becomes history because history, uh, which becomes history and he is sovereign over all of history. Uh, When God said, let there be, time began. And God did not dwell in time, but dwells in the spiritual realm without time and without space. Where? Here's a a quick, quick quiz question. Where is God now? God is everywhere because God cannot be contained to space. Where are you now? You're right here, sitting in this chair, in this room. It's very cold in here, isn't it? Uh, In this cold room, by the way. You're here. You can't be here and there. You're here. God is everywhere. Time cannot contain Him. Space cannot contain Him. Heaven cannot contain God. He's not limited by time and not limited by space. He's not bound by time and He's not bound by space. Again, He exists outside of time and He is sovereignly also ruling over time. A.W. Tozer said, because God lives in an everlasting now, he says. What, what, a, what an, an, an amazing uh, phrase. He lives in an, ever, in, in an everlasting now. He has no past and he has no future. Well, one may say, but that doesn't make sense. If God is outside of time and outside of history, then what does he, uh, then by what means does he not have, let me, let me try to, if he lives outside of time, then that means he does not have a beginning, yes. And he does not have an end, right? Then why does God speak of himself as having a beginning and end? I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Why does God speak of himself in those terms if he doesn't have those things about him? Tozer continues, when time words occur, like beginning and end, they refer to our time, not his time. Since God is uncreated, he is not affected himself by the succession of consecutive changes that we call time. God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God, Tozer says. Because God is not affected by time the way you and I are affected by time, the Apostle Peter could rightly say, with the Lord is one day, and it's a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day to the Lord. Which means that there is no substance of time with God. We may be wondering then, God is eternal, praise Him. God is sovereign, praise Him. How does the eternality of God encourage our soul? Well, there is great encouragement provided for us in the eternality of God, the perfection of eternality. What's the first application then? What can I take from learning about the fact that God is eternal? What should I learn? What should I take away from this? Well, the same thing that you learn from the sovereignty of God, that you should praise him. That he alone is worthy of praise, that he alone is worthy of glory and honor. He has no beginning. 
He has no end. Isn't that enough for us to worship God? We are creatures. You and I have a beginning and you and I have an end. We know when our birthday was. We don't know when that final day will be, but we have a beginning and end. God doesn't. Isn't that enough to just, if you thought about it for a moment, blow your mind? Weren't you kids at one point? And asking yourself, where did God come from? Because you know all things have a beginning. And didn't you apply that same reasoning to God at one point? Well, then where did God come from? And then for someone to say, well, he, he didn't come from anywhere. He's, he's always been. And even when you first heard that, didn't it perplex you? Well, he had to come from somewhere. No, he's eternal. There is no beginning with God. Uh, what should you do with that? Be confused? Uh, be frustrated? No, praise him. Worship him. We are not like him. We only know time. Our bodies, our minds, our abilities... All of these are being affected by time. We are, I hope to not burst anyone's bubble this morning, but we are slowly deteriorating every single day. Our minds are not able to remember all of the experiences that we've had. Do you know that, that, that there is nothing that God forgets? That he will know even every, every joking word that you said, and you will be accountable for it. I better put myself in and, and we will be accountable for it, won't we? The knowledge that we once have learned. Uh, the ability that you had to do math in fourth and fifth grade. My son is bringing to me third grade math and I, I'm, I'm Googling things. <laughs> I learned this before. I completely forgot it. It's going away. The plans that we have, we often forget, don't we? We're not as mobile as we once were, are we? Some of us can barely get from our bedroom to the bathroom without popping and creaking all over our body. We're not able to recover as we once were able to, are we? Uh, there was a time when we would be able to run all day long in the playground. And if someone said, let's go out and play, we would get back up and do it again. Now, if someone, if our kids play with us or our grandkids or just us play, we'll see them next week or at the next family function because that's how much time we need to recover. The greatest of athletes, they fade. The sharpest of minds, they dull. The strength of man diminishes, but the power of God never changes. The wisdom of God always remains. And here's another encouraging thing. And the love of God shall never depart from his own. He is eternal. He is eternal. This, dear ones, is enough for you and I to give him glory. Our view of him, is it not heightened? Our sight of him, is it not enlarged? And our call to worship him, is it not intensified? We should worship God. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 and verse 28, Isaiah 40 and verse 28. Have you not known, the prophet says, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God? the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then later he says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's everlasting. His word is everlasting. 
his, uh, 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 he will not faint nor grow weary. His understanding unsearchable. The psalmist says in Psalm 90 and verse 20, or verse 2, 90 and verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God did not come to be one day. He's not like the Hindu false gods who have an origin story. He's not born out of some light. He is light. He formed light. He is the eternal one from everlasting to everlasting. He shall not fade with time. He shall not be affected by the passing of time. For he has made time and dwells outside of it. And there's more application for us, isn't there? Richard Phillips describes our lives as a boat that travels downstream through a river. Imagine yourself on that boat. We are only able to see a short distance ahead of us and a short distance behind us. The things that we pass are, are in our sight, but for a moment. We experience the journey downstream, but we can only do so one moment at a time. But God, if we're in this boat, God, from here, the aerial view, not only sees the boat. He sees the entire river from beginning to end. He sees even more than that. The land, the country, the state, the, the world that we're in. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the source of the, of the river waters. He is the Omega. He directs the waters of where they should ultimately gather. He is the sovereign Lord over every twist and over every turn. Over every danger and every narrow path along that river. Our sovereign, eternal God sees the whole of our lives from beginning to end. The God who transcends time guides the course of time in all of the grand schemes, in, in every one individual's lives and even in every minute detail. He's not only ruling over it, he rules over it because he knows it all. Has ordered it all. He stands over history from beginning to end. What better news can there be for suffering saints. Than to know that their God is the Alpha and the Omega. William Barclay says. He has been the God of all who have trusted in him. He is the God in whom at this moment we can put our trust. And there is no event and no time in the future. Which will ever be able to separate us from him. He is the eternal one. We should praise him. Thirdly, the God who is self-existent, the God who is self-existent. He is the sovereign one, the eternal one, the self-existent one. Again, Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God is the one who is. Uh, if you're taking notes, that's a, a good phrase to, to highlight. He is the one who is. Not only does the eternal God have no beginning and no end, but he is the one who has no source or he is the one who has no source of life outside of himself, but who finds his source of life from within himself. He's the self-existent one. He depends not on anything outside of himself for his existence. He is self-existent. He is the one 
who uh, this Revelation 1.8 is an echo, if you will, an echo or allusion to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Moses at the burning bush, when God declared, I am who I am, it is uh, once again, if you will, being echoed here in Revelation. He is the one who is. The self-existence of God is declared in the very first scripture, the very first verse of the scriptures, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, without resource, without nail, without hammer, God created all of creation simply by the word of His mouth. Uh, The infinite, self-existent being of God. We're going back to Exodus. It's like that the fire of the burning bush. When Moses came to the bush, he saw that the bush was on fire, but the bush or the fire did not consume the bush. The Bible says that it was burning, yet it was not consumed. How is that so? It is because the fire did not depend on the bush in order to burn. Rather, its heat was self-sufficient. It burned on its own. And just like the fire that was from the bush did not need the bush to burn, God does not derive or depend on any resource for his existence. He is self-existent. God is self-existent. The theological term for the self-existence of God is this. It is aseity. Aseity. Uh, a from the word from and say, S-E, meaning from himself or himself. God is from himself. Now, this does not mean that God created himself. It's very important. And that also logically makes no sense. God would first have to exist in order to create himself. God is eternal. He's from beginning to end, and he depends on no one for his existence. Now, let's contrast to us. You and I are dependent creatures. We are dependent upon God for our existence. We are dependent upon food for our existence. If we do not eat or drink or rest, we will not survive. Were it also, though, not for God, we would not exist. God has breathed into man the breath of life. We are dependent upon God for our existence. Now, we are dependent creatures who depend on resources outside of ourselves in order to survive. Now let's go back to God. God is self-existent. He is of himself. He depends on no one or no thing in order to exist. He does not say, I need food today. He does not say, I need rest today. God is self-existent. He needs no one or no thing. Matthew Henry said, The greatest and best man in the world must say, By the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says, absolutely, I am that I am. We say, I am what I am because of God. God says, I am that I am. This is wonderful news for us. This means that the sovereign, eternal, 
self-existent one will have nothing outside of himself to cause him to react or change. That's important. Uh, when you don't eat, how do you feel? When you don't sleep, my daughter and I are exactly the same in this. When you don't sleep, what's your manner like? Are you cranky or can you survive? You are dependent upon things. And if you don't get those things, things in you will change. You need resources in order to be sustained. And even when you have those resources, you still change. The food that you eat could affect you. Getting sleep, but not enough sleep could affect you. Sometimes getting too much sleep will affect you. We're affected even by the resources that we receive. God is self-existent. He needs no resource in order to survive. He's self-existent. He's ase, which also lends to this, which means he's immutable. That is, God will not change. Because God is self-existent, because God is ase, he also is unchanging. He will not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We confess that our God is but one true and living God, our confession says, whose subsistence is in and of himself. He's self-existent. He won't be affected by external change as you and I are affected. We have already confessed that we are changing, affected by time and affected by plans, affected by plans that fail or succeed. We are affected by passions that move us in one direction or another. But it's not so with God. This is important. God's not moved when you do or do not do something. Uh, when I was younger, I used to hear the phrase, you're making God cry right now. <laughs> you will not make God cry. He's unchanging. He's immutable. He's self-existent. Uh, we can have faith that the God who is presented to us in the scriptures will stay the same. He won't change because you've changed. You don't get to affect him that much. He will not change. Listen to these things and tell me if you've ever heard something like them. He's not a man that he should change his mind. He's not like man that he should repent. No one can say of God, what have you done? Because God is incapable of error. I think you've heard those before, haven't you? Those are all uh, paraphrases of scripture. But then I think you might ask this. But isn't there certain passages where, where it appears that God has changed his mind? Isn't there certain passages where it appears that God has regretted? Isn't there certain passages where God, it seems, has been provoked to anger? You've heard that before. If God is self-existent, one who is not dependent upon resources outside of himself... And if he's not moved by passions like fallen men, if he doesn't change, then how are we to, to explain these passages where it seems like God is moved, like God is changing, like God is repenting? There's a book I'd like to recommend to you. It's called God Without Passions by Sam Renahan. Very simple book. And it has questions at the end, which, which is helpful. It's called A Primer. A Primer. God Without Passions. A Primer. And there, in this book, there is four solid points that Dr. Renahan lays out when we are confronted with passages like the ones that I just mentioned. I'm just going to briefly give you two. He says, 
Number one, passages that tell us about God's being or nature take priority over passages that describe God's actions. Things that we know about God to be true take priority over the things that we see God acting upon in time and space. Number one, here's the one that we want to step on for a second. Scripture uses the physical features and emotion, emotional experiences of mankind in order to teach us something about God. But, he says, we must not equate the human language used to describe God with himself as being a one-to-one correlation. We'll make sense of that in a moment. Uh, Hugh Binning said more description as to why God speaks in this way in the scriptures. What's the Lord doing? Pastor Isaiah has probably mentioned this a hundred times. The Lord is accommodating himself unto our terms and our notions. Meaning this, he's speaking to us in a way that we can understand. But we must not make one-to-one connections as though he's just like us. Benning goes on to say, he's like a father who stammers with the child, with the stammering children, who speaks to them in their own dialect. You know, you speak to your little children sometimes in ways that they can understand. So when you hear these terms in scripture, beware you conceive God to be such a one as yourselves, Benning says. And isn't that the indictment that God brought in, in Psalm 50 with the Psalm of Asaph? He says, you thought I was just like you. Isn't that what is uh, the great error of some churches and some Christians? They want to imagine that God is just like us. We are given these passages for what reason? To learn that there is something about God that he's trying to teach us. But we must not go too far in believing that he's therefore just like us. He's the creator. We are his creation. God will not change. He's promised so in his word. There is no contradiction. If one says God has uh, decided to go in a different direction and then yet one says God will not change. There's no contradiction. There's something that we need to understand. The problem is not in scripture. The problem is with us. He's sovereign. He's eternal. He's self-existent. He's immutable. He will not change. And again, we change. Our plans change, our minds change, our desires change. And oftentimes they change because of new information. They change because what we had planned didn't work the way that we hoped it would work. Not so with God. Isaiah 46 and 9, I am God, he says, and there is none like me. Not even the best of us. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God won't change. God won't be surprised by new information. He will not react to unexpected occurrences. He has ordained the beginning from the end because he is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has planned before the foundation of the world to save a people through his blessed son, Christ. And that plan will not change. He's planned to crown Christ as the only one through whom salvation will be found. And that plan will not change. He's planned to put all things under the feet of Christ and give him head over all things, even to the church. And that plan will not change. He has planned 
to return in glory and in victory and to cause us by grace to reign with him in glory. Dear ones, that plan will not change. They will not be altered in spite of what persecution and what tribulation we experience. Those plans will not change. And those plans are revealed to us in this letter. The God who is sovereign, the one who is eternal, the one who is self-existent, the one who will not change, is showing us his plan for all of history here in Revelation. And what should that cause us to do? Worship him. Rejoice in him and to worship him. He will not change. He also plans to judge the wicked. Let's not leave that out. He plans to judge the lawbreaker. The ones who have rejected the king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. He plans to return in power. And in that day and hour, no one knows the time. But those plans will not change. Is this not reason enough to worship him? Sermons like this challenge us, don't they? Because this is about the perfections of God. These sermons like this, they heighten our view of him. There are moments when we say, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Worship him. Adore him. I can't put my, my mind around all of the things that you're saying. You're not God. You never will. Worship him even in mystery. Even in that which you cannot understand, all the more reason to worship him. Uh, we see athletes. I was show, uh, washing cars with my wife yesterday. And I, I said to her, I've got a poster back here. I hope I didn't wet it. I go back there and I pull it out. And I pull it out with, with just like a, the sound of angels singing. It's a, it's a picture of Michael Jordan jumping from the free throw line. I'm going, whoa, look. And I'm staring at it. How did he do that? How could he jump that high? And it, he can't do that anymore, right? But I'm looking at that in awe. How does someone do that? I can't wrap my, my mind around that. All the more with our God. I can't wrap my mind around how He has no beginning. He has no end. He'll, He'll never change. Even parents, or even kids, you have parents who you love. Some days, some days they have good days, some days they have bad days. And you gotta roll with the good and bad days, don't you? God will not change. God is unchanging he's immutable all the more reason for us to worship the alpha and omega he alone is worthy of it number four and these two points will go quicker he is the god who is all powerful again verse eight i'm the alpha and omega says the lord who is and who was to come the almighty here at the end of this prologue god declares that he is the almighty And the word is really a combination of two words. It is all and might. All meaning all things and might meaning might or dominion. Might or dominion. For God to be God is for him to exercise sovereign power, authority, and rule over all things in all places and at all times. Sovereign power, rule over all things, in all places, at all times. Stephen Charnock says, as God is Lord, he hath the right to enact. 
as he is almighty, he has the power to execute. In regard to his sovereignty, he has a right to command all creatures. In regard to his almightiness, he has the power to make his commands to be obeyed or to punish men for violation of them. This dominion is a right of making what he pleases and possessing what he made, of disposing what he, what he does possess and to execute the manner wherein he resolves to dispose all his creation, creatures. Almighty. All powerful. Saints, do you think of God in those terms when you think about God? Many, and we're all guilty of this as well, when we think about God, we, we often like to think of him as only love. And let's not detract or, or, or distract or take away from love. He is love. But he's not only love, is he? The definition of God is that we can no longer define God. We, we are not able to define God. He is far too vast for us to define. He's far too vast for us to make a checklist of. Go to your wife. Uh, go to your husband and say to them, uh, name all the things that you love about me. Those are always fun, right? And you have to make sure that you put the best ones at the top and then you start kind of trickling down to the other ones. Can your husband or wife, your friend or best friend, do they usually stop at some point? Do they usually go, and I don't know, a whole bunch of stuff. Or do you say to them, and what else? And they go, ah, smart, um, hmm. Right? We're giving just five perfections of God in an infinite list that we could never make. God is almighty. R.C. Sproul said, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath. That's an idol. When we think of only God as being love and forgetting all the other perfections of God, we make him out to be someone that, that we want him to be, not someone who he actually is. Because we would like to consider or imagine that God will not punish either us or those whom we love for our wickedness. But that's not the God who is communicated to us in the holy inspired scriptures. God, as the sovereign Lord, as the Almighty One, calls the church and all creation to obey His commands, to worship Him alone, to abstain from the worship of false idols, to refrain from taking His name in vain, to keep His day holy, and to walk toward love and other image bearers of God. Why does he have the right to do this? Because he's the Almighty. He has the authority to command, and we are obligated to obey. God is a sovereign ruler, and that's a great comfort to us as well. Amen. Sufferings are not random, they're not out of control. They're being ruled and governed by the Almighty. There's a great purpose beyond our sufferings. Our knowledge of God, our knowledge is, is finite, but God's is infinite. He's eternal. He's unchanging. 
And his almighty love fills us with comfort and joy as we learn more and more about who he is. What should we do with this then? Worship him. Worship him. We give thanks to God alone. The one who is and who was and who is to come. Because he has great power and he rules over all. And last, this will be the theme throughout all of Revelation. Very briefly, he is the God who speaks. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was to come, the Almighty. Brothers and sisters, as we exit our prologue, as we exit this conclusion, uh, or this conclusion to the introduction, enter into the body of Revelation, let us not lose sight of this. God is speaking to his church. These are the words from God. We will be uh, presented with many things. But do not abandon this overarching truth as we press on. God is speaking to you, his church, through his word. What God says to his church is good news. The one who is sovereign, eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, immutable, impassable, He is speaking to the church. Which means we've not not been left alone. We've not been abandoned. We've not been left without the voice of God. Can you imagine? uh, After the the final prophets and the final apostles were were passed. We might be saying to ourselves, is God speaking? Are we left alone? Almost like at the end of Malachi, when, when we, we are so-called have this 400 silent years. Was God not speaking during those 400 years? Did they not have the law and the prophets? Of course God was speaking. And it's been 2,000 years since Christ ascended into glory. And is God not still speaking to His people? Has He left us as orphans? Has He abandoned us with, without a word from heaven? Not at all. We have His holy inspired Word. And every Lord's Day we come to hear it spoken once again to us. The good news spoken once again to us. And as as I've said before, we all should want to hear from where you're sitting for us to say, Pastor, say it again to me. Is Christ still risen from the dead? Is Christ still returning? Say it again to me, Pastor. Is Christ still bringing many sons to glory? Is the way to salvation still repent and place your faith in Christ alone? And we can say, because God is still speaking, yes and amen it is. God has promised that He will not leave us nor forsake us. He will shelter us through every storm of history. And He's promised to return. Breaking through the storm with His marvelous light. We have heard from the Alpha here in the beginning, and we shall hear from the Omega once more at the end of this letter when he says, Behold, in Revelation 21, 5, I am making all things new. He says, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we'll hear from the Son. We'll hear from the Son who says he is the first and the last and the living one. We recall the Lord Jesus Christ with his I am sayings in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection of the life. I'm the vine. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. 
We will hear from the Father. We will hear from the Son. We will hear from the Spirit. We will hear from the Spirit who speaks to the churches. He shall speak to all of us. And we are called not to quench the Spirit, but to yield to Him. I pray, dear saints, now as we press on, uh, next time we'll deal with probably nine, nine or eight verses altogether. I pray that as we press on that you would be encouraged to know this. That the one who speaks to you is God. Amen. The triune, sovereign, eternal, self-existent, immutable, all-powerful one. And that you would not harden your hearts, but that you would hear what the triune God says to the church of all times. Amen. Let us pray.